Well, in my childhood years, uh, the Battle of Carrick Shock was always a source of discussion around the fireside at night. And when we were children, we loved to sit and listen and hear my father talk about it. As his, grand, his mother remembered it, and her father fought in the battle. He was Jimmy Tracy. Uh, there was two families of Tracy's in Kilcurl in those days, and the uncle in one house was married to a woman by the name of Hill uh, from Milestone, and the nephew in the other house was married to her younger sister, Hill again, so that they were connected at both sides. And there was a Jimmy Tracy in each house, and my Grandmother's father was Jimmy Tracy, and he was one of those who was in the battle and one of the organizers, probably. But she remembered her mother on the morning of 18th of December, 1831, putting her up in the window, the second floor window, to call her when she'd hear some shots being fired. She did hear the shots. She called her mother, and her mother ran for Caddick shock and she remembered her coming back without her shawl or her skirt or apron. They had gone to cover the three dead men. Mary Wallace recalling some memories of the Battle of Carrick Shock in South Kilkenny. Carrick Shock was one of the many battles which took place in the 1830s over the payment of tithes to the Protestant Church. But what were tithes and how old are they? Dr Patrick O'Donoghue. Tides originally go back to, to pre-Christian times. They go back to the Jewish uh, church. Uh, and they were called then the sacred tent. Uh, and what it roughly meant was that a tenth of the produce of the soil was given for the upkeep of the temple, for the upkeep of the Jewish priesthood. And that's sort of the original basis for the tides. Then they were taken over by the early Christian church and in Europe, which was largely anyway agricultural, um, they were a tenth of the produce of the soil again. Though I think in most countries they would never reached actually 10% of the actual produce of the soil. Certainly in the Ireland of the, of the days of Catholic shock, they would not have been 10% of the produce of the soil. They would have been, oh, maybe half that. Or mm -hmm. Perhaps perhaps even not as much as that. But certainly not a tenth anyway, there's no doubt about that. But they were meant to be a tenth of the actual produce of the soil. That's, in very general terms, what the tides were. So they were carried on from early Christian times in Ireland? From early Christian times. I think the earliest reference I have read about tides in the, where Ireland is concerned is the 8th century. Uh, Dr Kathleen Hughes, who's written a book on the early Irish church, she mentions tides in the 8th century in Ireland, though they're not quite the same as we would see them in, say, 19th century Ireland. But they were as early as the 8th century tides in Ireland, yes. And then they came to pass to the established church. Exactly. At the time of the Reformation, they uh, were passed to the established church, to the church that Henry VIII set up, and then to the 
Reformation Church under Elizabeth. The whole of the tithes, the income from tithes in Ireland, passed to the established church, the Church of Ireland. Now, how in practice were they, were they collected, the tithes? How were they collected? Um, in, put it simply, I think they were collected by what was, man, what was known as a man called the Tide Proctor. Now, the Tide Proctor would be similar to the land agent uh, of the landlord. Uh, he was the agent for the Protestant rector of a particular parish. And he went around making different bargains with the farmers of the particular parish, or maybe union of parishes, because maybe sometimes the parishes were joined, four or five of them together, two or three of them together. And he went round to the farmers, usually in the autumn time, and made different agreements with them, which uh, would amount to a certain amount of the whole tide of the parish. And from the separate agreements which he made with the different farmers, he then took a percentage himself uh, and passed the rest down to the local rector. That's how they were collected. Now, to, slight, to go slightly further in the matter, sometimes they were collected as money. They weren't actually in kind. But sometimes they were actually several, say, barrels of wheat or oats or barley or whatever it might be. They were actually collected in kind and then sold in the open market. But coming up to, say, the times of Carrie Shock, um, about three-fifths of the parishes in Ireland were paying their tithe in money, not in kind. But the uh, farmer had the option at the same time of, uh, in many parishes anyway, uh, of offering his tithe still in kind and not in money. Though, the, as I say, three-fifths were uh, paying in money through a tithe composition act of about 10 years earlier, 1823 I think it was which was introduced, which allowed parishes to compound uh, the tithe of the whole parish for a certain sum of money, uh, and then for that money to be assessed uh, on the local farmers of the parish, or parishes as the case may have been. Mm -hmm. And these tithes would have been assessed from the, uh, through the tithe allotment books. Uh, what, what were they exactly? The tithe allotment books were uh, first of all, the local rector and the vestry had to agree uh, to uh, the tide composition. And then the local vestry nominated their assessor and the local rector nominated his assessor for the total sum of tithes in the parish and then how uh, that total sum would be made up from the individual farmers. Now, it's generally considered, I think, that the assessors in many cases were not particularly competent, either for the rector or, for that matter, for the, for the vestry. Uh, Griffith afterwards mentioned 
that he found very few of them of any practical use when he was making his uh, valuation. So they probably weren't very accurate uh, valuations of the parish of either good land or bad land, perhaps in the parish. Uh, but eventually an agreement was worked out uh, after sort of in principle they had uh, agreed to go into composition as it were. Mm -hmm. And this would have caused grievance, this would have been... Well, it certainly highlighted the rector's income. It was now known publicly and discussed publicly what the rector's uh, income was and consequently it highlighted that income and for many of the poorer, smaller farmers who after all would have been the vast majority uh, in the pre-famine Ireland of the 1830s, the income of the rector would have seemed rather princely in comparison to uh, their own income. Uh, the story began with Hans Hamilton, who was the vicar in October, and drew a large salary out of the tithes from the area. Canon Tracy, who was a nephew of the Jimmy Tracy, who was killed in Carrickshock, told me in his lifetime that uh, the tithes from the area amounted to from 1,700 to 2,000 pounds a year. The people rebelled, they were very poor, they couldn't pay it. And they got together and had a meeting and decided that by subscription they'd make up £400 a year and pay him a salary. But he refused. They approached him and he refused. Uh, they refused to pay the tithes and held out. And he hired Butler, a process server, locally known by the name of Brazen Butler, to serve the processes. Butler, the process server, yeah. he was in Barrettstone, above knocked over, yeah. and he was serving these, what they call the common people, natty tats, yeah. the summonses. Yeah. And they got three or four of their local fellas caught him, and they were in act of making them eat what he had left on his way back. Mm. And the prior in October, I couldn't think of his name now, just happened to come along at Barrettstone Bridge. Yeah. Yeah. So he rescued, uh, yeah. he rescued them, the process server, who yeah, was butler. Yeah. And um, he escorted them back, afraid they would attack him again. Yeah. So he went straight to Butler and he said, I'm collecting, I'm not serving any citations or summonses yeah, in the future yeah, without yeah. police protection. Yeah. So the next day, the police arrived and he did all around Noctua for Barristown and around there. And they came the second day and the crowds began to collect the second day and uh, they continued, but the crowd got very impatient and Chief Gibbons ordered to prime, Lord yeah. and prime. Yeah. And somebody of a bit of common sense got to calm down things. Yeah. But James Tracy, his, his, his uncle, or his nebia, Canon Tracy, yeah. he was the man who unveiled the monument, yeah. had a shop in 1923 or 4. Well, James Tracy stepped to him and he said, you collected the tides, or you served summonses for the tide yesterday, yeah. and you served summonses today, yeah. but we can assure you, if you come to serve them tomorrow, yeah. there'll be bloodshed. Yeah, yeah. So they, they went back, and the police went back to their barracks, and they assembled the next morning in Kilmagani. <coughs> right, right. yeah. And there was 38 police yeah. with the chief, 
Gibbons and Butler. Butler. And they came through the village of Hugginstone here around 11 o'clock. And they went on by the old commons That's right. in Hugginstone, yeah. up Hugginstone, to a man named Richard Welch's. Waterford. Richie Waterford. Yeah. There were so many Welch's on the mountains. Yeah. They all had they all had, had, had nicknames, yeah. as they called them. So they, the, as they passed through Hugginstone, they had arranged the evening before in October that if they did come through Hugginstone the next day, they would ring the chapel bell here. Yeah, yeah. And the chapel bell in October and the chapel bell in, in Ballyhale answered them. Yeah. And that collected the crowds the around here. Yeah. And when the bell rang here in Hugginstone, the crowds began to come because yeah. they were waiting. waiting they yeah. knew if they came that since the day before, they were all ready. Ready, yeah. So they came and they, they surrounded them practically at Waterford's, Welch's house. Yeah. And um, when they had served the summonses there, they moved out and they came back to go on back for Knocktofer. When they came to knock to, to Kyle of Allah, yeah. they couldn't come up with the crowds. No. So they went down into the narrow lane. Just as they came to there, at that point, James Tracy was leading all the local men. They were supposed to be kicking a football with yes, right, the belt to right. ring there. That's right. That morning, they were waiting since the, the warning they gave there before. So they were down in the valley and they came up and they they kind of halted them there. So he moved into this little narrow lane. Yeah. And when they were into the lane, the the it was said that Butler was like taunting the people that yeah. were around him. So Tracy made a spring to, yeah, gra to, yeah. to grasp him. Yeah. And when he did, the the chief shot Tracy. Yeah. And he jumped his horse. He was the only one on horseback over the fence. And a fellow with the with the long handled side or something. He he, he, clipped, he clipped the, the, the reins and the next fellow tumbled him with a blow on that's the head, right, and he fell off the horse, yeah. and that was the salt. So as he was falling, he gave the order to fire. But the people had crowded in so yeah. close yeah. that when they put up these long, ripe cows, they, they, yeah. they had to, they pushed them up, up in the air, and yeah. they only got to fire to shoot two people, yeah. and that was Power and Whalen. Yeah. Tracy was already he shot. Was shot he, he fell. He said, "Fight on, boys." He said, yeah. "I'm finished. That's I'm right. done." That's right. So the the skirmish, whatever it was. Lasted for about, as you said, 15, 15 minutes. Freeman's Journal, 17th of December, 1831. We have this morning received the following melancholy message from a friend in Kilkenny. Kilkenny, 6 o'clock, Wednesday, December the 14th. We had a dreadful scene in our county this day. Mr D has just returned from the neighbourhood in which it occurred. A party of 40 policemen went out this morning under the command of Captain Gibbons, Chief Constable, with a man named Butler, process server, to serve subpoenas for the Reverend Dr. Hamilton's tithes on the Union of Noctofer. The party were attacked about the hour of one o'clock in the afternoon at Kilkesi by about 2,000 persons. Captain Gibbons, Butler, the process server, and 12 of the police were killed, and four more so wounded that there is little hope of their recovery. There are many more badly wounded. All the arms of the police were broken into pieces and left with the slaughtered bodies. Two of the police escaped to Noctofer, and one got into Kilkenny. Immediately after his arrival, Mr Joseph Green, Chief Magistrate, with a party of dragoons, proceeded to Dr Hamilton's house. The assailant party were armed with pitchforks, prongs, spades, etc. The police were only able to fire about ten shots, 
three of the mob are said to have been killed. The attack was made suddenly in a lane or boreen with a wall on each side of it, and the arms of the police were at once rendered useless. Mr. Morris Reed, a magistrate, proceeded about three o'clock to the place and had all the hordes removed into Kilmorgany. I write the above in a hurry for post. The same report goes from Mr. Tucker, the inspector of police, here to the government. Humphrey O'Sullivan, a schoolteacher who lived in nearby Callan, noted in his diary... December the 15th. A fine, soft, cloudy day. Gentle wind from the west. A quiet, cloudy, moonlight night. A number of people were killed in the Walsh Mountains near Balahuguin yesterday. It is said that 18 of the peelers accompanying Butler, who was serving citations to the Bishop's Court because of tithes due to Hamilton, the minister of Knockhamtocher, were killed. This is bad for the Irish, as the Protestants will wreak vengeance on them. Michael Jordan recalls an old man who was present at an anti-tithe meeting. His name was Paddy Grant. Paddy Grant. Uh, they used to call him Old Paddy. He was 99 when he died, and he had his memory, and he had, he could converse perfectly in Irish, or in which sadly I didn't understand at the time. Yeah. But he, he often told me about a big meeting he was at in Ballyhale, where 200,000 people attended. It was to be the biggest rural meeting ever, ever held in the south of Ireland. Yeah. There were 30,000 men come across the Bridge of Ross. Yeah. And 30,000 came across the bridge of Carrick and Shewar, 20,000 from Waterford, and so many more from Tipperary yeah. to help to, to this big meeting. Yeah. They had four platforms. Yeah. But the man that described that very well is Humphrey O'Sullivan, yeah, the great school. Gaelic scholar. Yeah. From He was teacher in Callan, I expect yeah. he was a head school, school master, master in Callan. Yeah. Well, he described it very well in his memoirs yeah. about it, and it was the great pride of his life that he was on a platform and spoke there in defence of the Carrick Shock prisoner that were awaiting trial. July the 8th. A fine day, bright and short hot periods. I was at a meeting in Ballyhale, near Clochantoker and Carrick Shock. There were at least a 100,000 men present. There were 20,000 horsemen at it. Men came from Wexford and Tipperary to oppose the tithes and church rates and demanding the return of the Parliament to Dublin. I spoke there in Irish. That the Irish language was widely spoken in this area of Kilkenny is demonstrated in a letter written by a Reverend Foote to a friend some 50 years after the battle. Vickersfield, Noctofer, County Kilkenny, December the 4th, 1882. I was ordained for the curacy of Noctofer and entered on my duties the 13th of November, 1831. The tithe agitation was then at its height. My rector, the Reverend Hans Hamilton, D.D., had vainly endeavoured by various overtures to bring the farmers to terms, and having appealed to the government of the day, was informed that he must take the necessary legal steps, and then he would be protected in carrying them through. Accordingly, he procured writs against some of the most wealthy and independent farmers, and placed them in the hands of a process server, to protect whom 39 policemen under command of Captain Gibbons, who had been in the army, were sent. On his way, he called on my rector at the Glebe House, who implored him not to allow blood to be shed in the matter, to whom Captain Gibbons replied, I have a large force, my instructions are ample, and you know an Irish mob fly at the first shot. 
I was riding out to the very spot, Glebe House, where the police had sought refuge, to visit parishioners residing within a musket shot of the place. Some Protestant parishioners ran after me and refused to allow me to proceed, having heard of an awful occurrence. Riding back through the village of Noctofer, I found the people assembling and arming themselves with whatever came to their hands. I stopped, spoke to them, and endeavoured to quiet them. They were wild and excited, but respectful to me, and opened for me to pass on to the glebe. Having cleared the village, I turned my beast in the direction of Carrick Shock, and on a road parallel to that on which I was, saw a mounted policeman, and could perceive that he had no cap. Imagining that he must be one of the escaped, I turned back through the village and rode to meet him. He was mounted on a grey horse, almost white. He and horse were covered with gore. He was quite faint. I asked him would he come with me to the Dlieb. Anywhere, sir, for God's sake, I can hardly sit on my horse. I held him by the arm, urged our horses into a trot, and as we approached the village crowd, through which I must again pass, they, seeing the policeman and the blood, commenced yelling and stooped for stones, and only that a Protestant gentleman, who had long lived amongst them, rushed in and implored them to let us pass, probably I would not now have the pen in my hand to write for you this recital, after fifty-one years from the time of the occurrence. Arrived at the rectory gate, I found one of the escaped policemen disguised in civilian clothes and mounted on one of my rector's horses riding off to Kilkenny ten miles distant for assistance. I found the Dleeb house barricaded and filled with wounded and wearied fugitive police. Dr. Hamilton moving about administering restoratives. The fugitives brought word that the mob were after them and having made our disposition at all the windows and points commanding the approaches, we expected an immediate attack. The mounted orderly whom I brought to the Dlieb was pierced through the neck by a fork. I had him under my care for a fortnight before he could be removed. He is still living. After nightfall, the late Joseph Green, resident magistrate, arrived with a squadron of dragoons, scoured the country and made arrests. The next day, my rector and Mr. Hamilton, both thoroughly broken down, left for Lord Ormond's. Then they went to the castle, Dublin, whence he was summoned to give evidence before a committee of the House of Lords. They never returned. I, an almost unpledged curate, was left in charge of the parish Glebe House and all their property. The first person over whom I performed the solemn service of the burial of the dead was one of the policemen murdered at Carrickshock. The graveyard was in a desolate part of the parish. There was a great gathering of people. Young fellows got into the top of an old ruin, cock-crowing and making unseemly noises to interrupt. The crowd around the grave closed in and showed a disposition to shove me in. I turned some of the church service into Irish. The effect was marvellous. The old men took off their hats, the interruptions ceased, all became attentive. At the end I addressed them solemnly and affectionately. A way was opened for me to return to my vehicle. 
I was followed by kindly expressions, and afterwards messages were conveyed to me not to be afraid, nothing would happen to me, I was one of themselves, and they would not harm me. To the use of little of the Irish language on that day, I have ever attributed my preservation and my being able to hold my ground when my rector and many of the clergy fled the country. Many arrests were made, the Attorney General came down to prosecute, jurors were threatened, no convictions were obtained. The country was illuminated in triumph at the failure of justice, and I often passed and held conversations with parishioners who are known to have embrued their hands at Carrick Shock, and who have long since gone to their account. The leader on that fatal day, named Cain, eluded apprehension and was smuggled off to America by Lady Esmond. Ever since, when the police are engaged in supporting the law, they are assailed with a taunting cry, Carrick Shock. It was very recently the sheriff, when serving writs for Sir J. Blunden Bart on his property in the same locality, was followed by a lawless, turbulent mob shouting Carrick Shock, and had not the officer in charge learned experience by the sad fate of Captain Gibbons and kept the mob at a distance, Carrick Shock would probably have been reenacted over again. The Glebe House was converted into a barrack, and for one year and nine months, I, inhabiting it as a curate, was accustomed to the sound of the bugle and beat of the drum. After more than eight years' absence in England, Dr. Hamilton died, and the bishop appointed me rector. Following the battle, trials were held at the spring and autumn assizes of 1832 for the murder of Butler the process server. The accused, John Kennedy, John Ryan and William Voss, were finally acquitted through lack of evidence. Kilkenny Journal... Kilkenny, Saturday, July the 28th, 1832. Carrick Shock Bonfires. We have never witnessed anything approaching the grandeur of the appearance of the country in every direction after the liberation of the Carrick Shock prisoners. From 9 till 11 o'clock, the Johnswell Mountains, the Blackstairs Mountains in the County Carlow, Slevenamon, and every elevated spot within view of the highest points of the city was crowded with bonfires so thickly spread that they presented a brilliant resemblance of a star-studded sky. It was not the illumination of a city, but of a wide extent of country, and never did a metropolis lit up with gas transparencies and all the pageantry attendant on the rejoicing when British arms have triumphed over tens of thousands slaughtered on a battlefield, present a scene one-half so grand, or a twentieth part so interesting. Accounts we have since received inform us that the news spread with inconceivable rapidity, and that not only all the county Kilkenny, but Waterford, Tipperary, Wexford, Carlow and the Queen's County were in a blaze at the same moment. What will the Ministry, the Ministers, Baron Foster, the Attorney-General and the other Conservative gentry say in the expression of opinion recorded in the following passage of a letter in the Waterford Chronicle, the arrival of the Kilkenny car at the bridge was greeted with loud cheers which reverberated along the quay and in a few minutes all the vessels were attired in their finest flags, while, in the course of the day, the occasional discharge of cannon from the slipping in the river contributed much to enliven the scene. Humphrey O'Sullivan, July the 24th. The Carrick Shock men have been freed. The judge released them today. He couldn't find a jury in County Kilkenny which would find them guilty. 
There are thousands of bonfires on the hills of Ireland all around, as far as I can see, on Slievenamon, hundreds of fires on Slieve Dille, on the Walsh Mountains, on Slieve Arda, on the Cranach Hills, on every mountain and hill in the four counties, Kilkenny, Tipperary, Waterford, Wexford, and, of course, on Carrick Shock itself. Well, now, why was Carrick Shock picked? Well, uh, it was a very good site, wasn't it? They, had, they, were, they were hemmed in on the three sides. And it must have been picked. Why did my great-grandmother put her daughter up in the window to tell her when the shots would be fired? And the window overlooks Carrick Shock. We could look straight out of that window right up at the scene of the battle. And she put the child up to tell her, call her when she'd hear the shots so that they expected it. Also, a friar from Noctofu was out walking outside the friary. Uh, it was then farther out on the street than it is today. And when he heard the shots, he mounted his horse bareback and rode for Carrick Shock. And he lost his habit at what we used to call the Cunicom, the crooked corner just between October and Kilcurdle. He was going so fast for Carrick Shock that he lost his habit. So he must have expected trouble. Well, who would have masterminded all of this? Was it Keane who masterminded them? Well, sure they had several, I'd say. But Keane was certainly one of the but then how many organisers may have come from Newtown Valley, I don't know. Because after Caddick Shock, Caddick Shock was a dead litter. Nobody spoke about it. And the explanation I got of that later was that the old people felt that murder had been done in Caddick Shock and they just didn't want to discuss it or think about it. Well, I've heard it said that there was a... you could be arrested for shouting in the street, remember Carrick Shock. Did you ever hear that? I, I did hear that, yes, and I think it was true, too. They, they didn't say Carrick Shock. They just didn't. And had they any but, nickname for it? Or, uh, no, no, it was... Yeah, you need to say it's up Carrick Shock. That the Catholics of Carrick Shock got the support of some Protestant neighbours in their opposition to tithe payment is shown by these reminiscences. Bob's cross was halfway between Kilcurl and Noctofer. And a Protestant man uh, carrying a crutch, a cripple, lived there. Great friends with the peasantry. He lived in a little cabin there and he was great friends with the local peasants. Uh, but also he was accepted in the police barracks. Being a Protestant he was supposed to be with the Hans Hamilton and his crowd. But he wasn't. He was the very opposite because he was always in the police barracks and everything that was being discussed there, he sent a little barefooted chap off the street running with the message. They had their own telephone communication. Yeah. Uh, one story is told about two men were drinking in a public house in Ballyhale and they were blabbing a little bit about Carrick Shock and word came to the police, now is your time. But Bob had his little chap on the road ahead of them. But uh, 
the time was so short, they didn't know what they'd do with the two men to get them out of the way. But the workman was carting out the stables after the horses. And they threw him on the bottom of the cart and covered him with the stable manure and got him out in, got him out through the police. This is a story that was told in my young days. Yes. There was also the, the um, cave in the Rath in Kilcurla. Uh, they hid there during the time they were on the run. And a vice one night told them the police will be here in five minutes. And they had nothing to do but stick themselves in the ditch. And when the police came, they had to cast lots to see who would go in. And it fell on a policeman from Noctofer, and he went in and came out and said, the nest is hot, but the birds are flown. And this yeah. would have been the Protestant man again who gave the... Through the Protestant man, Bob Brithick, that gave the information. Also, a Mrs. Purcell lived, Purcells lived in the castle in Kilcurl at the time, and they were in a hiding there. They were sleeping there at night and uh, she got some message to say that the police were going to be on the watch that night and she went to the top of the castle with the red flannel petticoats of those days on a, a pitchfork and she was waving them back and by when the police came up to her and uh, asked her what she meant and she said she always dried the children's clothes up here and she was going to keep doing it but she was really warning the men they weren't to come. That the police were already there waiting for them. And she fooled the police. And she fooled the police. These are the smart ones we heard anyway. <laughs> With regard to the Battle of Carrick Shock itself, the local people and the people of Kilkenny would have seen it as a, a great win for them in the opposition to the side because of the fact that 12 policemen and the process server were killed. Yes. There's, there's no doubt at all about that. Uh, and it's very interesting in, uh, as I say, the police reports again uh, of, of where they thought the, the, the opposition was being led from. Uh, and uh, they traced on the one hand, or they thought they traced anyway, to uh, a, a local teacher who had been deported in 1798. Uh, this wasn't Keane, was it? Keane, exactly. That's right. Uh, and he um, had come back obviously again, obviously he was a united man uh, and he was going to do his bit in whatever was the political or constitutional opposition of the day or perhaps not so very constitutional but um, he was certainly going to see that the movement for the opposition of tides was furthered in the Noctofer area, Carrick Shock I think was in the uh, Union of Noctofer, it was a union of several parishes. Uh, he and a Carmelite friar actually in the Carmelite monastery in Noctofer, they were seen as the two sort of moving spirits uh, uh, with regard to the opposition of ties in the Carrick Shock area. Um, you were saying there that it was um, seen very much as a victory and there's no doubt at all about that and I have here a, a a street ballad which was sung in Kilkenny and the man actually was um, arrested and prosecuted for singing it in Kilkenny shortly afterwards uh, and it goes uh, like this uh, who could desire to see better sport 
than peelers groaning among the rocks, their skulls all fractured, their eyeballs broken, their fine long noses and ears cut off. It been in December on a Wednesday morning, strange rumours circled this country round, which was confirmed by Chief Given's orders to get the tides of their cattle pound. They hire best butler to sell citations and to enforce on the infamous tides, which fed the glutton of the Reformation and on his Catholics to deprive. Our chapel bells, they were kept sounding and seen the people in great numbers flow or dikes and ditches all speed abounding to meet the policemen in Carishaw. And how did the, the tides finally, as it were, fizzle out? Um, it fizzled out uh, in a way in which often things have fizzled out in Ireland. First of all, a very stiff Coercion Act in 1833, which enabled the Lord Lieutenant to impose martial law uh, on any area which he considered to be so disturbed that uh, it needed martial law. Now, in the same year, uh, with coercion on the one hand, uh, there was the usual recon or conciliation uh, on the other hand. And that was by way of a Church Temporalities Act, which did a lot to, I think the best way to put it would be prune the establishment of the Church of Ireland. The number of archbishops were cut down from four to two, and the number of bishops were cut down from 18 to 10. Uh, as well, the church cess, which was a very niggardly kind of little tax, apart from tithes, which was meant uh, for the upkeep of the local Protestant church and its maintenance and so on and so on, it was done away with. And uh, there was a graduated income or income tax on the, on the uh, salaries uh, of Protestant clergymen to pay for the abolition of the cess or partly to pay for the abolition of the church cess. Now, that was the situation in 1833. And because a number of prosecutions took place, because the government took a firm hand through the Coercion Bill of 1833, because of uh, a certain movement towards at least considering seriously the whole question of the position of the Church of Ireland in the country through the Church Temporalities Act, uh, people were inclined to see that at least something would be done with tithes. And there's certainly less uh, opposition in the years after 1833-34. And eventually there was a Tithe Commutation Act passed in 1838, which reduced the tithes by 25%. And included them in the landlord's rent. Uh, 
which meant that there was now no distinction between tithe uh, and rent. Mm -hmm. And that took, as it, way, uh, as it were, the odium away from tithes because everything was seen more or less as rent, even though there was 75% of the old tithe charge still in the rent. But it was uh, sort of camouflaging, as it were, tithe. And then eventually tithe was only finally kind of, if you like, done away with through church disestablishment uh, in 1869. The last official remnant of the tithe system ended up in the Land Commission, where Tom O'Sullivan could tell me that. There was a separate branch, you see, in our place, dealing with tithes. Um, it was called the church branch, church temporalities branch. Uh, there's remnant of it there today, somewhere. Um, and uh, the Falen Chard, who paid H.E.O., he was always known as the Bishop. <laughs> <laughs> but did the people of Ireland have that much objection to the tithe system on a political or religious level? Professor O'Curran would hold this interpretation. No, they wouldn't have objected to that very much because they didn't have that much of a political identity. The vast bulk of humanity goes on paying its taxes. The vast bulk of humanity doesn't ask what these taxes are used for. But in the rather raw and raucous um, faith situation in Ireland in the 1820s, it became increasingly felt as a grievance. And um, it was solved quite quite early on by commuting the tax. But it was not an iniquitous tax. And the vast bulk of Irish people said, well, this is the way things are, this is the way it is. They paid their taxes and they and, and they grumbled like all of us. But from time to time, taxes or individual taxes become uh, political issues. It's rather like that. P A Y E almost became a political issue with us. What are your own feelings about Carrickshaw? Well, we were always proud of it. When we were youngsters, we thought it was a great thing to get the older people to tell us about it. It was something that the place was famous for. Because the, it banished the tides forever. That was the idea, you see. Even though, as I say, that it may not have, they were collected in a, an easier way. 